0: Morning, kids and youth are dismissed to the back I think Pastor Bree has a crew and kids are dismissed back here. On this morning, or I guess this week, my prayer is actually, as we think about giving and what it means to give, I was reminded by Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, Dennis Edwards, in his really good book about the Bible, a little small book about the Bible, he reminds us that when we read through the epistles, we're reading the New Testament, and it says you, um, more often than not, like 90% of the time, maybe even more, it's talking about you all, right? So a lot of these verses that we grew up hearing you thinking it's about us, he's actually talking to the whole body. And I think it changes how you understand the epistles, because it's not just written to you personally, it's written to a whole church and it's written to all of us. And What I love about Philippians 4.19 is a lot of us who grew up in church, we, we heard this verse, right? And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. But what's beautiful about that is Paul in his thank you at the end of the book of Philippians, and I put the letter he's writing, he reminds them that they were faithful to him in his hour of need. And he reminds them that he's like, I'm only saying this now so you can know that God saw what you did and that you can be blessed and you know your account can be credited. And then at the end of it, he says, you know, I want to bless you the way you have blessed me. I think that's the beautiful thing about giving. That's the beautiful thing about our gifts, that that our God actually blesses us, resources us, graces us, loves us, so that we can bless, resource, gift, and grace others. And that's how the, the circle keeps going. So I love that Paul, at his lowest moment, is blessed by this church at Corinth. And now in writing his letter to them, he wants to thank them. And I think that's how we should think about giving, is this, this pattern of what God's given us, we give back to God, and God uses that to give back to others, and that in turn blesses us, and God gives us even more. Now, that's really good because our passage this morning isn't just about giving. You know, when I first started looking at this passage, I thought about how it's really about how our God is enough, about how our Father is the one who's all-providing, how Jesus the Son is the one who's all-loving, how the Holy Spirit that empowers us is the one that's all-gracious. And as we're going through the book of Acts, with this series, Acts Then and Now, we've been asking one question, right? What can we learn from the church back then that helps us today, now, what's interesting about our passage this morning is I think it's one of the most challenging ones in Scripture. You know, there's a lot of times you're reading Bible stories and you're, you're teaching, or maybe just in your own devotions, where it's easy to know who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, and you know, like let's go, right? Like David and Goliath, right? You don't have to do a lot of thinking about David and Goliath, right? Like David, good guy; Goliath, bad guy. God, hero of the story, right? There's plenty of this. Uh, there's plenty of that as you go through Scripture. You'll see all these different things where it's good guy, bad guy, good guy, bad guy. One of my favorites is Shipra and Pua two Hebrew midwives who were willing to stand boldly in front of the pharaoh who's like, in my opinion, in my Bible Bible discipline and and study would say, that's like the president of the United States, right? The most powerful person in the world at the time. These Hebrew midwives who were, you know, in the diaspora under their their rule were willing to stand up to this person and say, we will not do this thing that goes against our God, right? And because of that boldness, it's easy to see them as the good guys, the heroes, as the fighters. But this story is a little bit more difficult. Because when you get to Ananias and, 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 and uh, Sapphira, his wife, you get a story that's really, really hard. You get a story that's really, really complicated. You get a story that's probably going to challenge how you see God. It's going to challenge how you understand God. But I think in this story, there's something the church back then learned that we ought to be learning and living today. So you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. I'll be reading verses thirty-two, and I'll go all the way to chapter five, verse eleven. Uh, we'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Acts four thirty-two to five eleven, starting at verse thirty-two. All the believers were a one. Joseph, a Levi from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled you in your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't that money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Let's pray. I find out, God, we thank you that you are indeed enough, that you our father, are a father all-providing, That where we lack, you fulfill even above and beyond we can ever dream or imagine. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are indeed all loving. That all we are is made perfect by you and the power of your Holy Spirit. It's grown by your church and your body that's all around us, who've come before, who will come after, who are coming now as they pour into us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your empowering love. That you raise us up to shine for the glory of our Father in heaven. So we pray now that as we go through this story, that we may be reminded what it means that our God is enough. What it means to fully rely on our God. And what it means to fully, fully live for God's glory and not our own. In your holy and precious name, amen. So our passage this week actually picks up. Right where we left last week. Right. So Peter and John, if you remember last week, have been released from prison. They healed this lame man and and they, they preach the gospel and people are coming by droves and numbers and getting saved. The religious authorities don't like that. So they put them in jail while they're trying to figure out what's going on. And after they, they try to put them on trial, God brings them through and they go back to their people. And I think that's significant because, again, we all have people, whether it's friends or family, co-workers, people who live in our building, people who live on our block, people we see just walking around the block, right? We all have people. And it's this reminder that when God does something, we're to praise God on one hand, but then live to tell that story to the people around us. And that's what they do. And then they pray this prayer, reminding us that prayer should also be communal. And as a body, they pray these four things, remembering who God is, the creator, the maker of all remembering what God has done he sent Jesus to save them he sent the spirit to help them and then they also prayed saying God this is the situation we're in but we're expecting you to come through I think that's a powerful way to pray remember who God is remember what God's done tell God your situation and say you know what I'm now going to place my faith and trust in you and they prayed with expectation that God was going to move And the end of that passage, you remember what happens, right? The the place shakes. The Holy Spirit fills them up even more, and they go out and preach the gospel. And then we get to this section, which I think Luke does a beautiful job here, because he's going to tell a really hard story. So in many ways, he's going to picture it and kind of try to counterbalance it. But he also wants to introduce us to this guy named Barnabas, who's going to play a very significant part in Acts. So when you start off in Luke, um, um, well, I was going to say Luke 4, but in Acts 4, you start off in a pretty good place, right? You start off, and the first thing he tells you is, like, look at all these believers, the early church. They are of one heart and one mind. This week, um, a sister in our church sent me an article. And in this article, I, I felt really convicted, right? Because the guy was talking about the power. You know, sometimes when we read scripture. Or you read the Old Testament, New Testament. You're like, why are these people always complaining? Like, how come they can't get along, right? And that's why I was convicted. Maybe it was just me. I don't know about you, but maybe it was just me. But the guy actually had the audacity to say, Have you ever been mad at a Christian this year? Have you ever had a disagreement in this last year? Now, what if that disagreement was charted in all of history for them to talk about for 2,000 years? So I felt convicted, you know, so I was like, I'm going to stop complaining about people complaining in the Bible, right? But here's the thing, though. It's easy to be annoyed with one another. It's easy to actually get mad with one another. But what I love in this passage is when he characterized the church. I pray that's the prayer for us, right? That when we're characterized, they can look at us and say they're of one heart and one mind. Because that's the goal. That's the work. That's what we should be doing. Anybody can hate anybody. Anybody can be annoyed by anybody. But are you willing to love? Are you willing to be of one heart and of one mind? Are you willing to submit to Christ as you submit to one another? That's the goal. And then he talks about how they shared everything. Now, a lot of us, when we grew up, we have this idealized version of the early church that like, yeah, everybody sold everything and they all came together in community. Yes, kind of. But if you look at the history of the church, you look at even our church, you look at churches around, you realize that for somebody giving what they can or giving everything might look to you like a widow's mite. And it might look to you like selling a house or land and and giving it to the church. And what I love about this communal living is that they weren't defined by how much they give. They weren't defined by how big the check was. They're defined by simply this. There was no needy among them. And that too is the goal. So the goal is not just to be angry and mad and and fighting each other and to actually be of unity and and harmony and to actually be of one heart and one mind. The other goal isn't just give, but is that I have blessed you, I have graced you, I have loved you, I have given you every one of these things. Why? So if there's a need among you, you can meet it. That's the goal. And so when you're reading this, you feel good, you're like, "Look at this Holy Church, this is amazing. Let's keep going, right? And then we learn that the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers the people to witness, to testify. And I love that. I love that because when you go out and tell your story to your family, to your neighborhood, to your coworkers, to the people you see on the block, the Spirit is empowering you. A lot of us have this idea that my story is not that exciting. It's not that important. God lives inside of you. And we get later in the passage, you'll see the significance of God living inside of you, maybe from a new lens, but God lives inside of you. And I love that the mission here, Luke brings it up again. Remember last week, it was what? When God does something, go tell your people. This week is God has done something, still go tell your people. Reminding all of us that our lives are to be open books. The world is reading it anyway, so what is the story you're living to tell? What is the story you're living to tell? And then I have probably my favorite part of this, right? In verse 34 or 33, it says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. How amazing would it be if that's how we are characterized? If 100 years, 1,000 years, 10 years, 10 minutes from now, we were characterized by God's grace is so powerfully at work in them all. But here's the beauty that I missed for years in this passage. We grew up thinking when God loves us, God loves me. When God blesses us, God blesses me. When God graces us, God graces me. This is how Luke characterized the church. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. How do we see it? That there were no needy persons among them. When God blesses you, it's not for you. (laughs) When God gives you resources, it's not for you either. When God gives you skills, gifts, abilities, it's not for you. When God gives you money, it's not for you. When God gives you a story, it's not for you. Whatever God gives you, it's not for you. It's for you to give to the world. God graces you not so you can feel good about yourself, not so you can know, oh, I'm loved by God, that's great, that's what it's all about. That's not all that it's about. When God blesses you, it's so you can go and be a blessing. And God's grace is shown among the church by there being no needy among them. Another standard we are to live for, unity, harmony, working actually empowered to tell our story, sharing everything so there's no needy among us. The blessing comes because every now and then, it wasn't just people giving every week or giving to the community, but every now and then, certain people would just feel so called To radically give up everything. You remember what we call the rich young ruler, right? He says, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, that's easy. (laughs) Sell everything. Follow me. And he's like, well, actually, (laughs) everything. Like everything. Can I choose what I want to sell? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. It's all got to belong to me. And every now and then in this community, now we think it's about 5,000-ish, maybe growing every day. Someone or a couple would come up and say, you know what? I don't need this, or this resource that I have, this gift that's been given to me, like the church can do it better. There's need among us, let's gift it to the people. And that's how we meet Joseph, who when he comes into the community, remember new covenant means you get a new name, right? We believe in Jesus, that's why we're called Christians, right? Like new covenant means new name. Abram becomes Abraham, right? That's what happens. His new name is Barnabas, son of encouragement. And that's important because this Joseph who becomes Barnabas plays a great role throughout the book of Acts. But the first thing you need to know about him is that he was a Levite. The Levites were people who were assigned in the Old Testament to take care of stuff in and around the temple, right? So literally, this is meeting someone. If you met a Levite, this is someone who could walk up to you and say something like, yeah, my family's been pastors for 20 generations. And you're like, oh, wow. I don't know about you, but that's impressive. (laughs) Like, I don't know how you're doing in your life, but 20 generations, that's pretty good, right? That's what the Levite were. That's the standing they had. In fact, that the priests themselves came from one Levite family, and it was Moses and Aaron's family where the priests were born. So you know right away that when he's introducing Barnabas, he's saying, this one is special. This one is called. The other thing we learn about um, Joseph, who becomes Barnabas in this passage, is that he's from Cyprus, Why is that important? That's important because remember on the day of Pentecost, the people have spread. But also it's important because later on, Barnabas is going to be commissioned to go to his people. So Barnabas, who sells a field and commentators love to fight because no one knows. So they just make stuff up and say, this is my best guess, right? But some commentators believe the land he sold was actually in Cyprus because he's in Jerusalem. He's like, I don't need that. I'm not living there. Let's sell it. Let's give it to the church. Maybe that's what happened. We don't know. But what we do know in the passage is that this Barnabas, who's from Cyprus, later on after he grows in the spirit and grows in the community, gets sent back to Cyprus. Because we'll start talking about this next week. Right now we're in the kumbaya, everything's good phase with the church. But starting next week, the church is going to start getting persecuted and killed. And when that happens, the church splits, right? And the people go in all different directions, seeking God, seeking refuge, seeking safety. And one of the places the church lands is Antioch. And I love that the message that Luke keeps saying is like, God has gifted you, now go tell your story. God has given you people, now go to your people. God has given you resources, now give these resources. And this same Barnabas is the one who goes back to Antioch. And Antioch is important, especially for this church. Because when I look around the churches, whether you're in Africa or South America, whether you're here in in Harrisburg or you're in California or you're in Canada or you're in Mexico, a lot of our churches look like Jerusalem. But God calls us to be Antioch. Jerusalem is a church that's defined by who you know, who looks like you, right? Who that you're comfortable with, who you grew up with, the traditions that you hold dear. Antioch was the first missions church. Antioch was the first church of, of gathered people from all over. Antioch was the first one that actually sent out people. And I love that this Joseph, who becomes Barnabas, who maybe sold that land in Cyprus, after he's grown in the spirit, after he's grown up in the church, he gets sent to his people, reminding all of us that we have people that God just might be wanting to send us to. Another thing about Joseph, who becomes Barnabas, is probably even more significant, is that most of the New Testament is written by who? Paul. And before he was Paul, he was Saul. And while he was Saul, he was going around persecuting and killing and jailing Christians. And it was Barnabas. It was this Barnabas who goes before the Christians and says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you his story. Let me tell you what happened on that Damascus road. Let me tell you what God has done in his life. And let me tell you why we will now call him Paul. And that's who we're getting introduced to here. And in fact, Paul's first journey is to Antioch. When they go and see what God is doing there, they're built up in Antioch before they go out. And so you have to love this about our God, that that Cyprus, the stranger in Jerusalem, uh, Joseph, who becomes Barnabas, goes back to his people. And then when he comes back the second time, he goes with Paul. And Paul becomes his great apostle that we hold dear and wrote more than half of our New Testament. But it all starts with faithfulness of Barnabas. And the faithfulness started by him saying, God, you've given me so much, I give it back to you. Now, if the story ended there, it'd be great, to be honest. Right? Like, it made my week a lot easier. you know? Be like, Yeah, that's good. Yeah, let's give it all to God. We're good, right? But it doesn't end there, does it? because after we meet Barnabas, we're introduced to Ananias and Sapphira. Now we have to praise them a little bit because a lot of times our marriages, we're not equally, we're not equally yoked, right? These two were equally yoked. Like they were on the same page, right? Like they had their story. They were sticking to it. They were good. Like Adam and Eve, right? Like they were on the same page. The problem though is that the page they were on was not glorifying to God, because they too looked at, at, at what Joseph, who became Barnabas, did by selling his field. And Matthew Henry, who's one of the oldest commenters and one probably the most researched and used commenters, he actually looks at it as like, I think that they saw Barnabas being lifted up. They saw Barnabas' sacrifice, and they said, wait a second, we have land we can sell too. And if that's the trick to getting into the kingdom and moving up the ladder, I'm going to sell my land too." But the difference is when they sold that resource or that excess, they didn't give it all to God. They looked at the value. Maybe, maybe they had a, a housing boom, like we're going through apparently right now, right? And they're like, you know what? I was going to give God like 50K, but I made a little 75, so they didn't get 50K, right? But for some reason, they decided we're going to keep part of it. And Luke intentionally, in how he tells the story, wants to remind us of Achan, And if you don't know the story of Achan, it's good because your Sunday school teachers probably saw it and says, yeah, let's keep moving on here. (laughs) Tell another story next week. Right. The story of Achan is another one that's kind of like Ananias and Sapphira that is really, really hard. See, in Joshua seven, Joshua takes over after Moses. They're in the promised land and they're literally winning victory after victory after victory, conquering all these things. Right. And they go to Ai and scripture says they're routed right? 36 people die. Like, it's so bad that they're running and people are throwing stones at them. And they come back and Joshua, again, this is how you pray to God, right? Be like, God, you said you'd protect us. You said you'd always be there. You said this is our promised land. Why did we lose? You promised to protect us. And then when he hears of the deaths of the people, he starts weeping and he rips his clothes and the religious leaders and they're all reaping and gnashing. And finally, God shows up and God says, the reason you lost it's because someone in Israel has sinned greatly, and if you know the story of Achan, God gives him so much chance for grace because he does something right. When they're out and they're one of their battles, he steals the plunder. He saw a robe and was just like, "I think that's kind of nice. I'm taking that for me." Right? Then he saw some gold and silver. And he said, "I'm taking that for me," and he took it and he put it back in his tent. He had a chance to repent there and he doesn't the people go off the war he doesn't repent people die he doesn't repent God shows up and says someone sinned he still doesn't repent in fact God has them line up all of Israel by tribe right and after you get up by tribe they line them up by family and after you get up by family they line them up all in units still doesn't repent and finally when it gets to him and his family he raises his hand almost sheepishly and says um Yeah, so last time we were fighting in Babylonia, there was this really nice robe that I liked, so I took it, and I took some gold and some silver, and it's in my tent. And what happens is another one of those things like Ananias and Sapphira, where you're just like, wow, that's, whew, I don't know what to do with this. Because what happens is that the people of Israel are so angry, and they know that the reason people died was because of Achan. They take him, they take his family, they drive him out of the city, and they stone him and they stole his family, and they burned them. And that's what happens. And again, when we think about this, we're like, wow, this doesn't even feel like my Jesus. This doesn't even feel like God. This feels like I don't know what to do with that. And I want you to sit with that feeling because it's a greater lesson than the punishment they got, and it's a lesson on holiness and what does it mean to be holy. Because here's the thing. God seems to think, That if you lie to your brothers and sister, that if you deceive your brother and sister, that if you lie in my name, that's a grave sin. God seems to take it a lot more seriously than we do. In fact, if you go to the Levitical law and you read in Deuteronomy 23, it says this. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. What he's saying here is, what you pledge to do for me, I need you to do it. Because if I didn't ask you to pledge, but if you say, God, my life belonged to you, and you're not giving him your life, you're guilty of sin. If you say, God, my gifts belong to you, and you're not giving him your gifts, you're guilty of sin. If you say, God, everything I have, everything I own, all these resources, they all belong to you, but you're not giving it to him. You're guilty of sin. And that's what happened to Achan. So I love when people are like, I just feel like God's so much different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I am like, are you sure? Like, are you sure? Because what happened to Achan and Joshua is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And there's another theologian who actually pointed out like this. I think it's N.T. Wright. He points out this idea that like in the Old Testament... The temple was this physical building, and we know that God dwelled inside of it. And Matthew Henry picks up on this too. And he says the difference that happens here is in the New Testament, you are now temples of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit resides in you. Which means that when you lie and deceive your sister, when you lie and deceive your brother, when you lie and deceive your father, your mother, your cousin, your friend, you're lying and deceiving God. You're violating the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you see Paul or Peter in this passage, and he seems so angry and he says, you lied to God. You didn't just lie to man. That means every single time we lie, we deceive, we steal. Every single time we refuse to give God all of our hearts, all of our being, all of our resources. God sees that as a violation of God himself. And that's what happens. And that's why Peter confronts Ananias. And he actually says, Ananias, you have bowed to Satan and lied to the Holy Spirit. And Luke knows that the, the, the people reading this would all know that in the Old Testament, when we bow to Satan, Adam and Eve happens. But we have an example in the New Testament where Jesus and Satan comes and tempts him, and Jesus did not bow to Satan. We have Judas, who Satan came and tempted him, and he bowed to Satan. We saw what happened to Judas, and he picks up on that and saying, Ananias, by lying to the Holy Spirit, by lying to this body of believers, by lying to me, Peter, your brother, by lying and holding on to this and making it yours, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And what I love about this is that Peter. Another thing I love about Peter is Peter can be petty, which I love. I love alliteration. So petty Peter just makes sense to me, right? And he points out something that I missed, too. He says, Ananias, here's the thing. No one asked you to do this. No one asked you to do this. We did not say that, you know, you need to come and sell your land and give it to us. You chose to do it. You made the decision that, like, I want to give this to God. And then you didn't give all of it to God which should convict all of us. Because it's all of us who've promised God something. And if we're honest, we just haven't come through. And that's what Peter is almost vexed about. The fact that we didn't ask you to do this. God didn't even ask you to do this. You chose to do this. You made this vow. And yet you want to hold it on for your own. And Ananias dies. And it seems like a very severe punishment. But here's the thing about even the punishment, is that right after he dies, there's young men in the church, and they come, and they gather the body, and they wrap the body, and they go and bury him. And I think sometimes in our culture we miss that. So you need some of your African brothers and people from the other side of the world to tell you the significance of burial. Because you could have said, that man is a sinner, we want nothing to do with him. But instead, the verb that the the, the, the Greek word that, that Luke uses here is the same word for wrapping that they wrapped Jesus' body. So even though these people could be called great sinners, they were still loved by the community. They were still cared for by the community, and that should convict us too. Because let God judge sin; our job is to love. And so I love that even after they drop dead, it's the young people who run to the body and they give a grift wrapping and they, they go and they bury him and give him an actual burial. And that culture was important to bury them that day. But it's the love of those young people and they bury him. So even though you see the severe punishment, you also see the grace. Because Achan didn't get grace. They literally stoned him and burned him. And they named the place after him. Like, this is Achan's area. This is called trouble. Like, that's what they did to him. But the church gives grace to Ananias despite his sin. And then I don't know what happened. You know, maybe they didn't have smartphones. Maybe there was no iPhones. There wasn't Twitter. But somehow Sapphira didn't get the memo, right? It's been three hours and she shows up. And the thing I love about Sapphira, she reminds me of growing up with siblings, right? Any of you who grew up with siblings, you know this. When you do something wrong, it's not just about getting to the parents first. You got to sit down. You got to have a meeting. And what do you do in the meeting? You get your story straight right? Like, if you have siblings, you know this. You get your story straight. And, and, and again, you have to almost admire this about Sapphira, right? They know their story. She doesn't know what's happened to her husband, but she's sticking to it. Now, i me my mom's here, but it's fine. She's, she's over it now, I think, right? Long time ago, I was a student at Messiah College before it became all big at Messiah University. Um, kids don't do this at home. I had a friend. It wasn't me. I was the good one. Trust me. I was the really good one. You can ask all of them. They'll tell you I was the great one. But I just say I'm a good one because I'm humble, but I had a friend who just didn't do a good job of like, understanding, Like, I don't even know how to put this, like, he was zero to 100. So for example, you might be like, ha ha, I you know, sprayed you a silly string, right? And he would be like, ha ha, I took all your clothes, froze them and put them in the ceiling. Like, that's the kind of person he was, right? So like, you just didn't mess with him because it just wasn't ever equal. Like, Whatever you did, he's going 100 times worse. We knew that because we were his friend. Um, one day we come home from church, and we had like a radio show at the V, which was because we were like cool, we had cool DJs on campus, right? And so we had our radio show and we come back. And these girls, God bless their hearts, you know? Like, they thought it was a good idea to literally put crackers in our shoes. Now, as a kid who survived Civil War, you know, like, you could have at least put the crackers in bags so we could eat them later. it's like, why are you wasting food, right? Like, that was where I was. That's the wavelength I was on, right? Like, why they wasted all these crackers? Like, this is ridiculous, right? Not my friend zero to 200 this time, right? Don't do this at home, kids. So he goes, and he's like, we got to get them back. I'm like, "Mm, I feel like we got to clean out the shoes, right? Like, let's do that first, right? He goes outside in the hallway, and he sees a fire extinguisher, (laughs) law broken number one, rips it off the wall, right? Now, even though some of us were good, and even though some of us was like, we should be like Jesus, we should not do it, some of us were also 20 years old, and we're just like, well, let's see where this goes. At Messiah College at the time, they also had these things called visiting hours, which is like literally if you're a guy, you're not allowed on a girl's floor. Some of us, we just took that as a suggestion, you know? Um, and to be fair, they let us in, you know? So I'm going and I'm just like, what is he going to do? Remember, I, this is zero to 200, friend. So he gets to their room and, you know, no one's in the room. So I was like, oh, he can't do anything. But he has a fire extinguisher in his hand. And so he sprays and sprays and sprays, and <laughs> covers the entire room. It's smoke-filled, the alarm goes off, and all of a sudden we looked at each other like, oh, this is not good. So we did what every college student we do. We dropped the fire extinguisher, and we went to dinner. Forgot all about it. Come back from dinner, the three buildings, if you're familiar with Miller and Hess, like they're all connected, all have been evacuated. You know, people are outside, they think there's a big fire. There's seven or eight fire trucks on campus. And we did what every good Christian kids would do. We're like, we should probably leave campus, right? And so that's what we did. And one of us who was the brain leader, I'll just call him Hank, but we'll use our imagination, realized something. If our friend goes in front of Messiah College and says, I did this, they're going to give him the wrath of God, right? So we come up with, the I almost said I, but wouldn't want to give myself away, you know? I don't know about the Statue of limitations. It might not be up yet. But we come up with this plan where we're all going to tell the same story and stick to it. And when one of my greatest college feats, I got three college students to not only agree to the same statement, but we all filled out a whole page, word for word. And we thought we outsmarted the system. We're like, they can't pin it on any one of us, so they'll spread the blame, right? Instead of spreading the blame, they just tripled the blame, right? So we learned a lesson like Ananias and Sapphira did, right? When you're in the wrong, humble yourself. That it's not about loyalty, it's about asking for forgiveness and humility. That it's not about, you know, trying to stick to your story when you're in the wrong, it's about actually saying, God, I messed up. But she sticks to her story, and because she sticks to her story, she too falls and dies. But just like her husband, even though she was a sinner and caught in her sin, what do they do? The young people come back from burying Ananias, and they go and they bury Sapphira. They gift her grace, even in her death. And I think when you think about this story, it's uncomfortable. It's hard to think about what's happening. Why does God do these things? Why does it happen to Achan? Why does it happen to Ananias and Sapphira? I too have lied and deceived and I fall short. Why is God not striking me down? I think it's different because with this early church, God wanted his church to be holy, yes. But God wanted them to know that my word matters just like your word matters. Because faith is meant to be practiced And somebody in this room need to hear this, and our God is not mocked. Faith is meant to be practiced, but if you're just out here playing with your faith, our God is not mocked. And I think the lessons that we can pull from this passage, once we sit with that uneasiness a little bit, and we pull back, we can see maybe these four things. The first one is I think God is the Lord of us, but we must be the Lord of our resources. I had a mentor one time who says, if you want to know if something owns you or you own it, try to spend a day without it. And then if you got that down, try to spend three days, right? And if you got that down, I'm like, okay, that's good. We're good. We're good. We don't need more, right? Like, it's just three days I can do. But whether it's your cell phone or your job, and for some of us it's good things, whether it's your children or you trying to save the world, Whether it's, you know, anything that you're doing, if it's so enrapturing you and so bogging you down that you can't live without it, then that thing owns you. You do not own it. God is God. He's our Lord. It's time that we stop letting the things we own possess us. Years ago, we were going on a mission trip to Costa Rica, and it was our first mission trip that I led internationally, and we had this goal of $15,000, and I was foolish enough to be like, God, are you sure you're going to raise this money? Until God sent us a saint who's gone on to glory who bought a pie for $3,000 and spent $7,000. She almost by herself met half of our goal in one night. That's what it means to not let your resources lord over you, for her, A bunch of these kids from Harrisburg getting to go to another country to love Jesus or to to meet Jesus was that important. I think that's what it means to not let your resources lord over you. And I think as a church, we needed her not just for the 7,000, but we needed her to remind us that the youth auction is actually a fundraiser. (laughs) That the youth auction isn't where you come for deals, it's where you come to give these kids opportunities. And I think that's what it means to not let your resources lord over you. NT Wright says, holiness is not an optional extra. And I love that because there's so many of us who have a negative view of holiness. There's so many of us, when we think about holiness, we think about legalism. But the thing is, God called you to be holy. And God says you are holy. So you're either meeting God's standard or you're not. When God calls you to be holy, it's not just because He set you apart, it's not just because you're special. God calls you to be holy because you're where he resides. I keep saying this. If the world doesn't know who God is, but they know you, that's not God's fault. That's your fault because God lives inside of you. If the world doesn't know what God's love feels like and you can love, that's your fault because God lives inside of you. So when God calls us to be holy, it's because it's this whole thing that Jesus says, right? They will see you living and loving like me. They will see you loving and they will glorify our Father in heaven. That's the goal of holiness, not legalism, not perfection, but to look like Jesus. Because when we look like Jesus, that's how our world comes into the kingdom. The third thing I think we learn from this passage is that all of us are to give faithfully Cheerfully is what we learn in Corinthians, and lovingly. And that means that not just your money, right? And I think this church has been phenomenal through COVID financially. It's been amazing where we are now, and it's, it's, just, it's, it's amazing what you guys have done, right? Amazing what we've done even on a global scale in that sense, right? But it's not just our money. It's our gifts. It's our skills. It's our abilities. It's, it's everything we consider a resource. Are we giving that back to God? I have a friend in Canada, and I was talking to him this week, and he reminded me. Now, one of my greatest sins, um, and this is confessional time, you know? Um, one of my great, whenever I became senior pastor, people think I'm a priest now, so they just confess their sins. And I'm like, shouldn't you go talk to you and the person you're dealing with? Like, isn't that Matthew? Like, let's go there first. Like, I'm not your priest. Like, go to Jesus, right? So this is you. Now you get the, the benefit of it. I'm going to give you my confessional. One of my greatest sins of the BIC pastor is it's taken me 14 years to get to Roxbury Camp. But I'm going in a couple weeks, so God God bless me, right? It's going to be awesome. My friend reminded me that when you go to Roxbury Camp, they have something called Missions Day. And when you go to Roxbury Camp, you're not going to see the fanciest cars. You're not going to see the flashiest clothes. You might not even see any technology, much less the best technology. But what you will see on Missions Day are people who've been loving Jesus for decades. And what you'll see on Missions Day are these simple-looking folks who will come together And in that Missions Day, after John Hallbaker does his little sponsoring and his prayer, you will see them raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for world missions every single year. In a world that wants you to keep up with the Joneses, in a world that wants you to be bigger, better, faster, in a world that wants you to, to, to spend, to look good on the outside, God calls us to be cheerful givers for the kingdom. What they do at Roxbury is what we should do in our lives. So it's important that all of us not let our resources lord over us, that we know holiness is not an optional extra, but that we give cheerfully because God has gifted us so much. I like to call up Pastor Hannah and the worship team. We're going to close singing a song called Withholding Nothing. As I thought about this passage, after I moved through some of the uneasiness, I realized that the really calling, the lesson we get from this early church here is that we are meant to share. That everything God has blessed us with, we're meant to give back as a blessing. Everything God has graced us with, we're meant to give back. So my one challenge for you this week is whenever you get time, you can do it this afternoon, but don't miss our meeting at 3 o'clock, right? But maybe you'll do it tonight after our riveting meeting. Is Maybe you'll do it at 4 1, because our meeting's ending at 4 o'clock shop, right? But what I want you to do is I want you to sit down with a pen and paper, or maybe your computer, or for some of us, your cell phone, What I want you to do is I want to write down everything you consider a resource. Everything, whether it's a gift, a skill, a connection, a relationship, finances, resources. I want you to list it all down, as many as you can come up with. And I want you to just pray this simple prayer. God, these you've all gifted to me. Help me to give them back to you. God, these you've all gifted to me. Help me to give them back to you. If any pastors are in the room, I'd like to invite you up. We'd love to pray for you if you want to respond to something in the service or if there's anything going on in your life, we'd love to pray for you as well. But as we stand and sing withholding nothing, may that not just be the words of our lips or the songs of our hearts, but maybe the songs of our lives that we're all living to withhold nothing for God and for the kingdom. Let's stand and sing together.
1: before we sing Withholding Nothing, I'd invite you to join me in the simple chorus. I bet you know it. I surrender star- Withholding nothing, withholding nothing, withholding nothing, withholding
0: nothing. One of the great blessings of becoming a parent for me has been um, seeing the, yourself and your children the good stuff anyway right um and one of the things i love about my kids besides the fact that they love me right um is that they love music and one of the things we've noticed about harper is that like you play a song once and you forget the lyrics of the song but she does not You know, she just loves singing. She loves music. And one of her favorite songs is actually by Jason Mraz, and it's a a song called Have It All, which is really like a blessing, really, where he's like talking to this person, I want you to have everything, right? But there's a line in this song that I I just especially jumped out to me this week, and he says, may you take no effort in your being generous, sharing what you can, nothing more, nothing less. And I thought about it as he pronounces it as a blessing. I don't know if it's to his daughter or his wife or whoever, um, but he pronounces a blessing that he wants them to have it all. The difference with our God is our God has given you all so that your world can have it all. That God wants you to to make no effort, to take no effort in being overly generous so that your world can see in what you share, everything that you can, nothing more, nothing less. That your world can know that God is real, that God loves them, and God's with them. Our final God, we thank you so much that we are so blessed. Now help us to go and be a blessing. That we are so graced, now help us to go and meet every need that comes along our way. That we're so loved, help us to now go and love. God, we thank you that as a church, you call us to serve. So help us to to submit to you as our God and to, to realize that what we've been blessed with, we are to lord over it and use that for your glory and your kingdom. Help us to know that you've set us apart and you've called us holy so that we can shine so our world can see and glorify you. That Lord, we may not be able to argue people into the kingdom, But with our love, with our light, with our submission to you, we can welcome them home again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that in our giving, of not just our finances or our money and our tithes, but of our gifts, of our skills, of our our, our hopes and dreams, our abilities, everything that you've given us as a resource, Lord, we thank you and we gift them back to you. And we pray that you help us use all those things. So that our Father in heaven may be praised. So our Lord Jesus may be seen. And so the Holy Spirit can continue to work. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen? Amen? God bless you all. Have a great week.